Focal Point, the IMV Imaging Podcast. I'm Harriet, your host, and we're joined by the usual members of the IMV clinical team. So a big hello to Sam. Hi, everybody. And we have Amy. Hi, guys. So this month's discussion is going to be about something less common that we're used to ultrasounding, and we're going to be talking about eyes. So we're going to be discussing the indications, the technique, and the normal appearance of the eye in canine and feline patients. And of course, the techniques discussed here can also be adapted for use in equine and farm patients too. So start the discussion off. What are the indications for wanting to perform an ultrasound assessment of the eye and the orbit? Yeah, thanks, Harriet. I mean, I think it's it's really interesting to talk about um, ocular ultrasound as it's one of those areas that um, people maybe don't always necessarily think about as much when you've got the ultrasound scanner there, that this is an area that you can apply it to. But there are lots of um, reasons to use ultrasound in in ophthalmic cases. And in in referral practices, it's used extremely commonly for looking at a number of different different conditions. In terms of sort of indications, I I think the main ones that um, I'm aware of is, is, is often examining the kind of intraocular structures, especially when something's obscuring them from direct visualization. So we're all kind of used to using our ophthalmoscope or some of us might have a slit lamp and being able to examine kind of parts of the eye um, uh, using that. But if there's anything that causes sort of um, hemorrhage or accumulations of inflammatory cells um, or there's corneal edema um, present, it obviously stops the light kind of passing through the kind of that part of the eye and allows to see further into the tissue itself so that's where ultrasound really steps in and has a real role and that you can apply it to be able to look sort of further in into the eye so that's that's certainly one of the reasons as to why you can use it as well um other reasons why you might want to apply it is just for for determining the extent of, of lesions or changes around the eye so if you've got any sort of retrobulbar um, disease. You can look at the retrobulbar space um, using ultrasound. You can also, if there's sort of neoplastic lesions, um, even if you can directly visualize them or visualize a mass or a change within the eye, ultrasound can allow you to see the tissue at the periphery that you might not be able to directly visualize to actually determine how far that change goes or sort of where it goes to as well. And then finally, a little bit more specialized is that ultrasound can also be used for acquiring dimensional measurements of the eye for for re, for reasons um, of kind of checking to dimensions of the spaces um, in within the eye or, or within structures too. So lots of different reasons as to as to why you might want to um, perform it. Something that can be really useful when you're scanning the eyes is if you've got congenital cataracts and you want to assess whether the animal is a good candidate for surgery on those cataracts because you want to know whether there's any concurrent abnormalities within the eye as well, such as a detached retina or whether the actual lens itself is structurally normal apart from the cataract. Um, And you can also, if you've got a very specialised, very high-frequency machine, you can assess the iridocorneal angle of the eye in animals which are suspected of having primary glaucoma. So I thought that was pretty cool because that's such a small area, quite fascinating that an ultrasound machine can achieve such high resolution to be able to examine that. Yeah, the the, the examination of kind of 
cataract is changes is again is, is definitely an area where ultrasound can be really useful and um, one of the benefits you have with with um, ocular ultrasound which we may come on to, we'll come in to talk about in a bit more detail I think is just that a lot of the ocular sort of spaces are filled with fluid that's anechoic or the actual lens itself and um, parts of it are, are kind of anechoic so appear black so a lot of changes a lot of pathology which create echoes create a sort of echogenic area it's going to provide brighter and um, stand out quite well within those spaces um, so it's quite nice in terms of that sort of structure. It's like looking at other fluid build structures um, akin to a kind of urinary bladder or something where you could see sediment, you can see changes sort of suspended within the fluid. The eye has similar features, just in a super small scale. I know that we're going to be sticking to mostly ultrasound for today's discussion, but are there any other imaging modalities that can be used to assess the structures of the eye? Yeah, there, there, there is. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 like um, any other sort of parts of the body, there's lots of other complementary imaging modalities that you can use as well. And it's, it's good to touch on them because I think it's sometimes easy to get sidetracked by talking about um, one thing, in this case, ultrasound. Um, but yeah, CT and MRI oft, um, have, a, have a, a definite role to play in kind of imaging the ocular structures. You can acquire those three-dimensional sort of images um, of the, the more complex bony structures in and around the eye as well and for determining the extent of changes again in the retropulbar space or in the other areas and um, neoplasia uh, foreign bodies it can be very useful and um, to use both of those modalities because you can um, you can get that detailed imaging of the eye and any surrounding structures as well. It's worth sort of touching on uh, while we sort of talk about the 3D imaging modalities is that, yeah, the, um, they have the sort of advantages in the sort of detail that they can produce and also the fact that we can use contrast. So we can use um, iodinated contrast in CT or gadolinium-based contrast in MRI, and that can really help to highlight vascularized um, changes, um, sort of especially with neoplasias. But they do require require um, sort of sedation and general anesthesia and they are very expensive so uh, if maybe you're lucky enough to be in a practice with a CT or you you can, you have somewhere you can refer for MRI and things but a lot of us actually have an ultrasound available and ultrasound again we might touch on this in a little bit or about exactly how we do it but from an ocular perspective it um, can actually be done with the patient sort of um, conscious um, and it's a very sort of widely available so whilst those other imaging modalities are are, are really good great um it's for a lot of us in general practice ultrasound actually has a lot of utility because it, it's there and it's available as well i was wondering really um with ocular ultrasonography whether the 3d modalities have much of an advantage to be honest over ultrasound with regards to detection of lesions because looking at the kind of things you can detect with ultra ultrasonography of the eye I can't imagine too many scenarios where CT would be vastly superior and that kind of feels a bit different to some other areas of the body. I don't know how you guys feel about that. I suppose I think it would it would potentially depend on the extent of the pathology. Um I think if you've if you've got something that's sort of relatively locally limited within the eye that you can visualize with ultrasound, ultrasounds are definitely going to help. And we, we always should remember that these are complementary imaging modalities. They're not sort of, it's not just necessarily that one size, one thing works for everything. But I, I certainly think for things that are have a wider extent, like again, neoplasia is probably one of the classic examples or looking for foreign bodies in and around the, the ocular sort of region, then those sort of 
3D imaging modalities probably really do come to the fore because they can really look and, and kind of um, sort of investigate the bony structures and the other soft tissue structures or the nervous system in more detail. If you've got a lesion that's maybe extending along the optic nerve or moving backwards um, towards the kind of um, towards the, the brain itself, um, then those are really helpful. But I think for a lot of a lot of the more, uh, sort of pathologies that you will see, there's definitely reasons why ultrasound is is probably a very good first line kind of imaging modality for a wide variety of, of um, conditions. So starting from the beginning, how would we typically prepare a patient when performing an ultrasound um, examination of the eye? So well, the first thing to probably mention is it's always worth thinking about the contraindications, so why we might not do it as well before we go on to, to sort of why we, we do do it. So it is contraindicated where ocular surgery has been recently performed or if there is severe kind of um, globe or corneal trauma. So if you've got a patient that's got a deep um, corneal stromal ulcer or has a desmetaceal, um, we don't want to use ultrasound because there's a risk of causing further damage as well. And and that's because in terms of how we how we do it is that the most common um, sort of method used is actually direct um, corneal placement of the ultrasound transducer as well. So commonly um, when I've seen it done or, or, or used it myself in, in practice, um, we're applying some local anaesthetic to the eye surface. So usually one to two drops of 0.5% of, um, proximeticane as an example to, to numb the corneal surface. And then we're um, usually getting an assistant to hold and sort of stabilize the patient's head. And then you can usually apply the ultrasound um, transducer directly to the cornea using kind of a liberal amount of ultrasound gel. It's worth just going on a little bit of an aside on the ultrasound gel stuff here just now, because obviously we have to be careful because we don't want to introduce any contamination. So if you've got large kind of multi-use bottles of ultrasound gel, um, you want to be um, careful about maybe considering sort of having um, a more sterile sort of a single-use gel for the eye as an option. Potentially you can get sort of little sachets and things for it. You also have to be careful with some gel types is just looking at what preservatives and things are within the gel because there is cases that have been documented where the gel itself has actually caused corneal damage. So you've actually got ultrasound um, ultrasound gel causing corneal ulceration um, because of that as well. Um, so using a sort of a, 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 a sort of sterile single-use gel, ideally avoiding um, preservatives in it, um, is kind of useful. And then applying the gel liberally and then actually just placing the transducer directly onto the eye surface and then um, and then and you can fan, you can angle or slide the transducer across this sort of ocular surface again in, in two orthogonal planes, ideally, to, to examine the eye. And you would examine both eyes. So you would want to, to compare one to the other as well. Um, I remember reading that um, whenever you're scanning the eye, and I kind of got this from personal experience as well, that due to the nature of the makeup of the eye, um, it tends to just generate quite specular echoes that are perpendicular along the, the beam of the ultrasound, and that any kind of structures that are to the left or the right, so lateral or medial, um, tend not to generate particularly strong echoes. So it's worth noting that you need to sort of um, head obliquely um, side to side as well with um, sort of a rocking motion which could be a wee bit tricky uh, or a sliding around the surface of the eye uh, motion in order to be able to pick up the lateral and medial structures. 
I think it's also important to note why we perform these examinations conscious, just because sedation and GA can cause retraction or rotation of the globe um, and can ultimately affect the image quality and the orientation. Um, another question I just wanted to put to you both is, say you have um, you aren't able to uh, apply the ultrasound transducer directly to the cornea, what would you do as an alternative? So yeah, that's an interesting question. And um, there, are different, there are different scenarios where you, you, you hear about people taking different approaches as well. So you can scan um, transpalpebrally, so across the um, eyelids themselves. So if you've got a patient where you want to avoid, um, well, avoid pressure directly on the corneal surface for, for whatever reason, or if there is... Um, a patient that's more uncooperative and, and there's there's changes there, a blepharospasm um, that you might not be able to, to, to kind of um, prevent. You can image across the, the eyelids themselves. The difficulty is that the sort of the hair and the area around there tends to trap air and it means that usually there's a degradation in image quality, so it isn't quite as good. Um, uh, from there, um, I have to admit, I haven't tried it very often, so I don't know how significant the difference is, but that's sort of a documented thing as well and um, there's also in i've read in in some uh, texts regarding um, ocular imaging as well is just actually the potential use of of standoffs as an option so one of the common ones um classically heard is a sterile glove maybe filled with water um or ultrasound gel and actually just putting the finger of the glove over the eye surface and then imaging through it um you can't see what I'm doing now, but I'm holding a finger up to my eye. And, you know, if for, for some reason, it's a podcast. I'm doing it anyway. Um, but uh, the, uh, the, um, the, that's another way of actually just creating a bit of space between the, um, between the transducer and the eye surface. And obviously, when we're scanning abdomens, we always think of marker pointing cranially or marker pointing towards the right-hand side of, or to the patient's right-hand side. How does that work when we're coming to scan eyes? Do we have the marker pointing medially or do we have the marker pointing laterally? Yeah, so that's, that's another good question. So when i've been i did some reading around this um when when uh, before we kind of came on to this and i don't think there's there's that much of a consensus in different types of literature exactly how the orientation is is done uh, performed so i don't think there's 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 a way that everybody typically uses or if there is it's not that easily documented as far as i have seen um when i have done it i've tried to use when we're in a I'm trying to think about the planes relative to the eye here. So if the, the transducer is orientated medially to laterally, um, it would normally have the marker towards the medial part, i.e. the nasal part of the eye. And if we've got the um, transducer orientated vertically, um, so i.e. dorsally to ventrally, it would normally have the marker towards the dorsal part of the eye. So then you sort of know with the fact that most of the machines are going to be set up so the left hand side of the screen is displaying that kind of marker side you'd know that if you're in that um if we're in that sort of dorsal plane the kind of we've got the transducer oriented to medial to laterally left of the screen is medial nasal and if it's the um if it's vertical the left of the screen is the dorsal part of the eye as well so that's how that's how we sort of I would I would sort of do it and I think if people have their own conventions it's fine as long as they know how they're doing it and they do it in a standard way. So we've covered a little bit about patient prep 
what kind of machinery or kit would you recommend that we use in practice because that's really the next step um so everybody's got different bits of equipment available is this something that you can attempt with a microconvex transducer etc what are your thoughts uh i think most commonly when you're scanning eyes uh, you are either using a microconvex because the the curve of the probe does aid with um, moving across across the globe um, or for a higher frequency you're using a linear probe and quite commonly for eyes you will see some specialists using the hockey stick linear probes um, I don't know if anybody else has any more thoughts on that and um, that's just what I thought. The hockey sticks particularly are awesome because they've got such a high frequency um, but also they've got a smaller footprint which makes imaging the eye easier than if you've got a linear so a linear probe will have um, a high frequency but just have a bigger footprint which makes it more difficult particularly for the, the smaller patients so the hockey stick does appear to be the dream but um, I don't think you get standoffs for hockey sticks. I I yeah I don't know. I don't know if there is standoffs available for them. I would imagine there there might be, but I don't think I've ever seen one. Um, seen one around. I think one of the things that's also important to sort of say is that for a lot of us, if we're in general practice, we probably might be quite limited in the transducers that we have access to. So for a lot of people, if you're listening, you might think, well, I've only got a microconvex or I don't have anything other. I, th- I think what I would sort of say from those is, is even though, yes, ideally you can get those specialized hockey stick probes and they are amazing and it is what a sort of specialist would have and typically use, um, the, um, the you can still achieve images of the eye uh, with uh, other types of transducers and there's nothing wrong with just having a go if you've got cases because it can be extremely rewarding using ultrasound so I wouldn't I wouldn't I think it'd be important to say I wouldn't let the fact that you maybe don't have that bit of equipment to put anybody off because even though you might have a lower frequency um, transducer you can still see posterior parts of the eye and the retrobulbar space with them so I'd encourage people to still have have a go with them as well. Honestly probably because I'm an imager at heart I'm better with with ultrasonography of the eye than I am with directly visualizing because I find that it's actually the changes you can see like retinal detachment lens changes uh, changes in position of the lens measurements of the internal diameter of the chambers etc I find all that so much easier with ultrasonography than I do with um with using ophthalmoscope would either you ever recommend using two tra- two different transducers for ultrasound in the eye? So say a high frequency linear for the anterior structures and then a microconvex or slightly lower frequency for the posterior structures? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think I think if you if you're in a if you're in a situation where you've got a variety of transducers, it, it, it's it's always good to use them if you want the best images. I mean, obviously, for the sake of expediency, sometimes people don't like to change transducers. Um, we're not all l- lucky enough to have a, a machine or a system where we can have three or four of them attached at one time and easily switch between them with a button press. And um, but but in an ideal world, yeah. I mean, if if we think the example of abdominal image there'd be lots of reasons why we might want to use a microconvex or a linear or potentially even a lower frequency convex with different situations and and the eyes the same if you've got a a lovely high frequency one you're going to get better in high resolution images the anterior structures and then yeah your microconvex might be the way that you see more of the retrobulbar space and you can assess those structures that are further away so you're going to have to pick a preset what preset would you go for well, that's that. That's a difficult question because technically, technically, you could you could make one for eyes, um, or you could get your imaging provider 
whoever they may be, um, to uh, to uh, to make one for you if you happen to be in a situation where you're performing a lot of ophthalmic scanning. But I think it generally, if if I was there in practice, I, I would use an ab abdominal preset um, uh, to start with, and and you, and one aimed at the sort of smallest um, sort of depth of tissue possible. So I think if I was in my practice and I had a cat abdominal setting or a or a sort of small dog abdominal setting, that might be the start but you're still going to have to adjust the image controls yeah so on that note um think about image optimization um ocular ultrasonography is going to give you a fairly black and white image um always remember to have your focal zone exactly where you want it to be uh, particularly if you're looking for sort of lens problems um and retinal problems but something that i saw that was quite interesting is if you're looking for um, evidence of uh, hyphema or hyperpion or potentially vitreous degeneration particularly it can be quite useful to turn the gain up in those particular areas because fluid within fluid particularly quite stationary fluid isn't necessarily going to show up but uh, particularly with vitreous degeneration if things are getting a bit more liquefied in the vitreous it does help to to turn up the gain um, using your time gain compensation in that particular area and then move the animal around a bit and then you can see things swirling around which is quite cool just coming on to uh we were talking about frequency i recently read an article and came across the word ultrasound biomicroscopy i was just wondering if anybody can elaborate on it further yeah so Ultrasound biomicroscopy is quite cool, um, but it's, it, I don't know if necessarily a lot of people have probably heard of it because it's one of those things that mainly exists in kind of clinical research or sort of highly specialised op ophthalmology and probably more leaning towards the human side. I, I think, I, I speculate that that's what it is. But an, an ultrasound biomicroscope is just a, a very small um, ultrasound transducer that's very high frequency so it, it's it's like if you think about our specialist linear sort of hockey stick type ones and um, that would be used in maybe most um, ophthalmology practices and um, this is the one that sort of takes it a little bit further so rather than being say maybe 15 or 18 megahertz bio ultrasound biomicroscopes are like 20 up to 50 megahertz potentially higher so they're extremely high resolution but they have very low depth of penetration um, as from there. So they're used often in research settings to look at the anterior ocular structures in a lot of detail. And I believe they, they essentially are, 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 are just a very, very small ultrasound transducer. And they usually have some sort of form of standoff just applied to the sort of surface of them. So I think in most cases, they sometimes have sort of a, a little pocket that's filled with sort of saline or um, to create a sort of fluid pocket between the transducer surface and the eye. But then they can be applied to get very, very detailed images um, of things like the cornea and again, assessing things like the, the drainage angle and other parts of the anterior eye. They can the images they can get are quite amazing. So I'd encourage if you are interested, it's worth having a look up to sort of see the way that they're kind of used. But I don't think it's something we'll probably see in 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 practice outside of maybe some some very kind of um, specialized referral practices. But yeah, it's a really interesting this incredibly high frequency kind of high resolution imaging. Yeah, I saw that the resolution could achieve imaging. Um, that kind of matches with 
histopathology um, in terms of how much you can see, uh, which is amazing, isn't it? That is amazing. I hadn't heard that um, before. So the, you know, that's quite, yeah, that is quite interesting. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, they will be coming back to that, just the sort of really high resolution images, but it allows you to see all the sort of, you can see the kind of corneal layers and you can see such such details. It's a very interesting um, and interesting kind of modality, but yes, not, not something we're going to be using day to day. So moving on, we'll start talking about normal appearance of different structures of the eye on on ultrasound so is there anything in particular that you should be looking out for when you're um, performing an ultrasound examination of the eye so any artifacts which are quite common or anything that could be a mistaken pathology when it is completely normal um yeah so i mean i think as, as amy mentioned what you'll what you sort of often find is that the um the sort of tissue interfaces that are directly um, perpendicular to the way the ultrasound beam is passing often appear quite bright. And I think because of some of the refraction of the sound, you get um, a little loss of detail towards the edges of some structures. So I think you get a little bit of, of what's known as edge shadowing happening in the eye because of, of that. Um, so it, it's important, as we sort of mentioned, to kind of move the transducer. And it's also important to examine both eyes. Um, I, I know I mentioned this before, but it's worth saying again, so that you can compare one to the other. Um, but you can, you can examine the sort of tissues of the eye right through from from anterior to posterior um, it just depends on the type of transducer and equipment you have as to how much information you're going to gain from those more anterior structures because for example again looking at the the cornea and um, just starting at that corneal surface um it's it may be quite difficult to see the the sort of layers unless you've, you've been careful to apply lots of ultrasound gel and you've been careful with the pressure you're applying to the eye surface um to, to sort of see that um i mean starting with that the corneal has the cornea has a sort of layered appearance so the epithelium and endothelium appear hyper quick so they appear as, as curved and um, bright white lines and the central stroma appears um sort of anechoic or hypoquic so you sort of have that white black white appearance of the sort of layering and generally often corneal changes might appear as a sort of loss of that layering and a change in the thickness of the kind of corneal layers so you'll get sort of a pacification of the layers and uh, with edema for example it becomes more echogenic so the, the cornea would become thickened and you get a loss of, of that inner kind of anechoic layer so certainly that's um, something you can see however as I said it may be difficult depending on the and would that be a typical change you would see say if you were suspicious of a corneal foreign body yeah i mean i think so it's it sort of with the with the corneal foreign bodies that are, are present a, a lot of them you're going to be able to see with direct visualization so i think it would be relatively rare that you might have one present within the cornea that you couldn't you couldn't maybe see to sort of actually visualize using a, a sort of slit lamp or a, a, a direct um, ophthalmoscope exam and things like that. Um, but but yes, I think if you had a foreign body present, we would expect um, edema, we'd expect changes in thinking, we might even expect the foreign body to be visualized on the ultrasound if it happens to be particularly echogenic or, um, or reflective as well. But I think it, it would be relatively rare that you would have a, a sort of a corneal form body that you would need to use ultrasound for. Well, we could continue our journey 
more posterior in the eye. Um, so from the from the kind of cornea, so it has a, a layered appearance, and then the chambers of the eye, which are sort of fluid filled, generally should appear anechoic under normal circumstances. So if you've got the kind of anterior and posterior chamber um, filled with aqueous humor, that tends to be um, anechoic um, as well. So you get those anechoic areas sitting behind the the kind of cornea, and then continuing from there, the iris is quite echogenic so this sort of iris and ciliary body um they'll appear kind of continuous as this sort of echogenic structures um that sort of almost sit on the sort of anterior lens surface um at the periphery of the lens itself um so they appear um echogenic um, as well so again ultrasound can be very useful for example if there is um neoplasia from the sort of ciliary body or the iris tissue um iridial iridial tissue i think is possibly the correct adjective um but um the uh, the so they could then see a sort of mass that um is extending into uh, into the sort of um into the chambers or through the tissue in the eye, we'd see a sort of a, a, a change in the sort of uh, the normal structures uh, that we would see from there. And again, if there's any uh, change within the um, within the fluid, it often appears echogenic. So, sort of blood will typically appear as echogenic material. Um, inflammatory cells will appear as echogenic material um, suspended within the, within the fluid itself. Just going back to you talking about the lens. Off the top of my head, I feel that lenses tend to appear anechoic, and then in cases of, and please correct me if I'm wrong, of cataracts, you tend to get an echogenic um, appearance of the lens, which would indicate the presence of a cataracts. Yeah, that's that's correct. So the the lens, so yeah, the anterior lens capsule appears a convex echogenic line, and the posterior lens capsule will appear as a concave echogenic line. And then the lens stroma appears as uh, as sort of typically anechoic. And if there are changes like kind of cataractous changes where the lens proteins are altering how their sort of solubility, they tend to be echogenic and will show as a sort of echogenic material within the lens. So typically you would see with cataractous change, you might be able to see echogenic material. You can kind of locate where it is within the lens tissue itself. And you may also see changes in just the size and shape of the lens as well. Just wondering out loud, um, with nuclear sclerosis of the lens, which is a very common ageing change in older dogs, how that would appear on a lens um, when compared with cataracts? So, yeah, so I, I don't have loads of experience of scanning many dogs with nuclear sclerosis, but I, I know from um, reading that nuclear sclerosis can appear again as echogenic material within the lens, but it tends to be a fainter sort of concentric ring of echogenic tissue within the lens stroma essentially almost paralleling the um the lens capsules and things so you get a fainter sort of ring of sort of echogenic tissue just sitting within the lens and it isn't it, it sort of tends to be 
again, this is reasonably anecdotal, um, tends to be slightly kind of less echogenic than sort of more denser areas of cataract, this sort of change as well. Um, so you can sort of see that. Again, also be remember that we can directly visualize the lens as well in many scenarios. So there will be situations where you've got lens cataract change and you can't see the lens because there's changes in the anterior chamber or the corneal surface and ultrasound is very useful. But in some cases where you may be dealing with a patient who has um, sort of nuclear sclerosis, you might actually be able to see and you can combine the sorts of changes you can visualize with what you can see on ultrasound as well. I think commonly also when you have cataract formations, you do also get changes to the, the vitreous chamber as well. Uh, there may also be degeneration, which may help to help you differentiate between a cataract and a nuclear sclerosis. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, sometimes if there is um, lens changes, they can trigger uh, inflammatory responses and other changes. And you, you can get forms of, of vitriol generation um, as well with that, too. I mean, I think it, theoretically it would be possible to have probably some nuclear sclerotic change and vitriol changes and things as well. But yeah, often if there's more severe cataract change, you might expect other, other ocular abnormalities at the same time. What other structures would you be able to see within the eye? I'm thinking how uh, how visible the optic nerve is, whether you can visualise any of the vessels. Certainly in large animals, I know you can visualise the vessels in the back of the eye. Um, I'm just wondering what we're thinking for cats and dogs that way. Yeah, so, I mean, the... the... The, there's lots of things that you can continue to, to vis, uh, visualize sort of in the posterior the posterior sort of segment of the eye as well because we've already mentioned the sort of vitreous again it should it should appear, appear sort of anechoic so you can see changes within that and then um, posterior to that you've got the um the kind of combined layers of the retina um, choroid and sclera at the back of the eye, which appear kind of continuous. But as we've already mentioned, if there's retinal detachment, you might be able to see the retina as a, um, as a sort of echogenic line um, separated from those tissues. And then going further into the retrobulbar space, you can see the, um, the you can see sometimes the well, coming coming back actually slightly, um, the optic disc often appears as a sort of slightly recessed echogenic area at the posterior part of the eye. And then you can often see the optic nerve as a sort of hypoechoic area extending from that um, more posteriorly. And then either side of that, you tend to have areas of retrobulbar fat that look as sort of more echogenic kind of triangular tissue. And then towards the periphery, the extraocular muscles are sort of thin mans of hypoechoic kind of tissue around that. So there's lots of sort of tissue that you can you can see in these these areas um, as well. Um, in terms of the blood vessels, I think I would imagine in, in sort of small animals, given this sort of um, this sort of relatively small size, it would be quite, quite difficult to directly visualize vessels. But again, we'd be able to use Doppler to probably see where there's vascular floor to areas as well. Sorry, Harriet, did I steal what you were going to say? It's always. It's, there's nothing worse, isn't there, when you're like, I've got something I want to see, and then somebody steals it off you. Yeah. I was just going to ask, in what circumstances or scenarios would you use Doppler in the eye? Uh, something that I saw, actually, was if you're assessing for um, a hyaloid remnant, you can use Doppler to assess if there's any blood supply through the hyaloid artery, if that's still present. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely one. Is they say for persistent hyaloid arteries, um, you can use Doppler for. And then I think we can think about the use of Doppler 
in the same way as other areas of the the, the body, if, we, if we're looking at a bit of pathology and we want to establish sort of how get a, a maybe a subjective idea of how vascularized it is, or whether there is vascular flow with, within the lesion or not, Doppler can be used, and and that's the same in the eye as it is in in the abdomen or other other parts of the body. Doppler just provides you with that extra little bit of information. So again, um, it's very useful to try out if you're assessing a pathology and you're wondering about that and um, pop the Doppler on. Yeah, I'm thinking it'd be quite useful if you're looking at um, iris lesions such as um, an iris cyst or potentially if you've got um, a neoplastic lesion within the iris that you're scanning and seeing that it's more extensive than just a little cyst sitting on the margin of the iris, you could have a look and assess the vascularity of it. Um, so I expect the, the neoplasias in that area are going to be reasonably vascular when compared with um, something like a cyst, which won't be. Another comparison to a, neo um, a neoplastic lesion that you could make is if you had hemorrhage, so an organised clot. If you put the Doppler on, you're not going to see any blood flow compared to if it is a vascularised uh, neoplastic lesion. Yeah, no, they're all uh, great reasons to use um, Doppler and certainly, again, something like ocular ultrasound itself would encourage people to try. I think if you've got systems with Doppler, the best way to learn kind of how things look and how to use it is is to to sort of um, to pop it on and have a look at different lesions. And it can be surprising the amount of information you can sometimes get using the sort of Doppler systems if you're not trying it out that often. Just coming back to um, iridociliary cysts, um, as you mentioned, Amy, can anyone describe how they appear on ultrasound? Go on, Amy. I really say set me up for a failure here. Um, yeah, so you would expect a cystic lesion within any cavity, but uh, same with the eye to appear uh, broadly spherical or rounded. Um, obviously, we're going to say rounded because we're seeing a two-dimensional representation, um, thin-walled, and with an anechoic centre. It's also good to mention that they are commonly predisposed breeds, which they occur more often in. So Gone Retrievers, Labradors, Great Danes and Boston Terriers. But obviously all breeds are um, can be affected. And obviously our big differential that we're worried about would be a melanoma. Absolutely. Which is why it would be important to scan to tell the difference between the two. Yeah, and, and I mean sort of cysts can be an incidental finding in a lot of cases as well but as you rightly say um where they are potentially adhered to areas um or where there are multiple ones ultrasound can be useful to sort of help us that diagnosis and again the, the doppler um can be useful as we mentioned too can't really think of any eye stuff now any other eye stuff apart from variations on normal but i think Cats and dogs are broadly similar as far as I'm aware with regards to how their eyes look on ultrasound. Um, small furries can be a bit weird. So um, I know that rabbits have got a particularly myelinated optic disc that actually protrudes quite a long way into the vitreous and looks quite florid um, on ultrasonography. So that can, if you were scanning a rabbit's eye, and uh, our, rabbits do get eye pathology quite commonly, um, you'd want to watch out to make sure that you, you didn't sort of interpret that as being a pathological lesion. I think as well, their eyes are their eyes are quite small, aren't they? Like, I, I can you imagine sort of somehow trying to get like a transducer onto like a guinea pig's eye or something like that? I can only imagine it's going to be quite challenging just to sort of place it and see that tiny bit of tissue that occupies like the first sort of half a centimeter of the screen. Crazy. 
Well, just on the on the subject of sort of um, analgesia and facilitating um, examination of the eye, I think um, things like local anaesthetic, topical local anaesthetic are hugely invaluable. And it's amazing what an animal will put up with in the sense of um, you've got the eye open, you've numbed it, and then you're, you're putting gel on and coming towards them with a probe um, that they can see coming. And cats and dogs are incredible at tolerating this. Uh, but it is recommended with the, um, the large animals to use nerve blocks, um, particularly the frontal nerve block and the auriculopalpebral, which are both quite straightforward to use. Um, but obviously the um, the strength of the, what's it called? Well, your, your palpebral reflex. Kind of, but what? How would you? How would you scientifically or veterinary describe like the strength of their eye closing ability? There, I'm sure there's a term for it. I mean, normally you see blepharospasm, like the blep, like the the sort of intense blepharospasm, is it not? Or because of the strength of their ability to close the eyes when the eye is sort of threatened or whenever they're feeling uncomfortable, um, it's very much worth putting on a nerve block. Um, although transpalpebral scanning in farm animals and equine is sort of more commonly done than it is with cats and dogs. Uh, so not a huge problem, but you'll obviously get a far superior image if you do manage to uh, block the eye um, and the, the animal is uh, happy enough to have the eye scanned. I think from experience, cattle are slightly less keen than horses but still you can get an awful lot of uh, valuable information i think from my time in farm animal practice i remember seeing a lot of pretty awful eyes which um using ultrasonography would have been very useful to to get a bit more information on what was going on back there the only difference i can remember from my time in equine is that compared to small animals the technique tends to be trans palpebral rather than on directly onto the corneal surface in horses. Um, and your blink reflex is what you're thinking of. Well, I think that pretty much wraps it up, unless anybody's got any jokes. I don't have any ocular ultrasonography jokes. That seems like your kind of area, Sam. Niche dad humour. I mean, I have one. Okay, go on, go on. This has to, <laughs> but it has to go in the podcast. <laughs> Oh God! Okay, I don't even know how to uh, present this. I, it's a, it's not a great, it's not even a great joke. <laughs> um, what do you call a dinosaur with no eyes? Oh, I... Do you think he saw yeah. us? <laughs> what do you call a dinosaur with no eyes and no legs? Don't know. Still, do you, still, do you think he saw us? You're so talented. Anytime anyone in the group is like, I need some humour, I'm like, I'll try, but this is really Sam's area, like, on-demand jokes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, oh, I've got one. Okay, go. Cool. What do you call a fish with no eyes? Oh, good one, Sam. Fishually impaired. Oh God! No one laughed. Well, so it wasn't even the the sh- one. That that's like a classic, is it not? I know. <laughs> <laughs> what about what did the right eye say to the left eye? Between you and me, there's something that smells. <laughs> this is not really going to go on the podcast now, is it? Okay, one more. Where do rabbits go to get their eyes checked? 
the Hopticians. Well, that's been really interesting. If you'd like to know any further information on Ocular Ultrasound, then please see the two recent articles that Sam wrote for Vet Times. Um, they are still available online. I'd just like to thank you both for joining me and we'll be back next month for another episode of Focal Point. Until then, please take a look at our social media platforms for lots more great imaging content and keep scanning. So it's a goodbye from all of us. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>